Hello everyone, 7 Investing CEO Simon Erickson here, and thank you for listening to the 7 Investing Podcast. Our podcast is made possible by our subscribers, who allow us to empower you to invest in your future each and every month. In exchange, we give our subscribers exclusive access to our monthly stock market recommendations from each of our lead advisors. To support this podcast and join other 7 Investing fans in our exclusive subscribers forum, where we discuss the latest market moves in real time, go to 7investing.com slash subscribe to subscribe to 7investing today. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our 7investing podcast, where we're here to empower you to invest in your future. On today's show, we're going to be chatting about innovation and technology, and I'd like to welcome back one of my favorite guests of all time, Tiernan Ray. Uh, Tiernan has founded the Technology Letter, which is a, uh, you can read articles about technology and everything that's going on in the world with that. I've been a subscriber since day one of when you started it, Tiernan. I've followed you for several decades and always a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me here today for 7 Investing. This is my favorite interview to do as the as the target. So thanks for having me, son. Tiernan, we have a, a lot of fun things to chat about. We're going to talk a little bit about the arm holding uh, IPO that was recently happened. We're going to talk a little bit about quantum computing. We're going to talk about Cisco acquiring, acquiring Splunk. But I would like to start with a topic that you and I chatted about briefly last time, which has become even more important as I think other investors are picking up on this, which is the electrification of the world right now. You, you wrote a piece uh, about this back in February of 2022 about silicon carbide and the impact that's going to have on a whole bunch of different industries. Uh, specifically, anything that requires energy to move mass is now going more and more in the electrified ways. We talked about electric vehicles, we talked about wind turbines, we talked about HVAC equipments. And you mentioned um, in the last quarterly results to, to frame this, that On Semiconductor, who is one of the players in this space, has now beaten analyst expectations for 13 consecutive quarters. And specifically, one thing that helped them with that was the sales that they had of silicon carbide had quadrupled in year-over-year -year sales, uh, and they now have $3 billion of new long-term supply in, uh, agreements that are in place. Can, can you give us an update since we last chatted about this, Tiernan? What is going on with silicon carbide? What is going on with the electrification of the world? And then also maybe some thoughts about on semiconductor, if you have any. Yeah, the Tesla Model S was the first car to use silicon carbide for what's called a traction inverter, Simon, which converts from DC energy coming out of the battery into AC power going into the motor. And so it's a very important um, choke point where you either get more or less of the battery's potential. And so the traction inverter is a key element of range and performance in electric vehicles. So the Tesla Model 3 proved that silicon carbide was the future for these kinds of systems. There are many semiconductors that are packaged into a brick that uh, is installed in the car. And so it became a race for who's going to be the supplier for these chips. And the early favorite was Wolf Speed, ticker W-O-L-F, Wolf, right? Uh, because they had been Cree, which was an LED lighting maker. They sold that off to uh, Smart Global Holdings, which is a fun kind of mashup, right? A, a Kiretsu of different businesses. They took the LED stuff and Wolf focused on, we're going to be a pure play investment in silicon carbide chips. It's all we're going to do. Um, and they seem to have the pole position, Simon, um, when I wrote that article in February of 22, in saying, don't do this with old tools, build a brand new factory. They built a huge factory in upstate New York. 
the Mohawk Valley to make um, wafers eight inches in diameter, which would be the only in the world that would be that large because they've conventionally been six inches in diameter. And we've seen in past, we saw this with Intel in the 80s, moving to eight inch in diameter, that extra number of chips on a single wafer gives tremendous economies of scale. And so the idea would be you build this factory, build bigger chips, you're the only one who can do it, you're the only one who can empower the makers of the finished systems, finished traction inverters, to have a better margin because you can bring down costs with more yielding, uh, higher yield of chips. And so the idea became Wolf Speed is the pure play in greenfield production. Along comes on semiconductor, and they have a very smart CEO, Hassan El Khoury, who had proved himself dynamically at Cypress Semiconductor, where he turned around a decades old business, um, really uh, gave it a new lease on life, uh, improved profitability, um, improved their focus as one of his strengths is seeing what stuff to get rid of, what stuff to focus in on. And so Hassan came into on semiconductor, which was a similar kind of diversified semiconductor maker, uh, not like Wolf Speed. It was not focused only on silicon carbide. It was focused on many things. And Hassan said, we're going to um, start to be very strategic in how we talk to car makers. We will give them, we'll compete with Wolf Speed, but we're going to demand that we get promises of purchases from these car makers and from their system makers up front. And so um, what he did was he went and bought GT Advanced, which is a company that's been around for decades. Um, you've heard of them. They tussled with Apple. At one time, they were going to develop Ruby, um, Ruby glass components for the iPhone. And it was all kinds of, like, there's all drama about this company long-term company existing for decades, bought out by on by Hassan El Khoury. There's a lot of skepticism. It was a brownfield approach. So Hassan said, I'm not going to go build a new factory. I'm going to take existing assets and I'm going to make really good uh, silicon carbide out of this existing plant. Um, everyone was saying, no, the way is greenfield with full speed, not brownfield with on semi. Hassan has proven the doubters wrong starting uh, late last year, but especially when they did the analyst day in New York this spring, um, people started to say, oh my God, he's actually right. They can take these assets we were skeptical about, GT Advanced, and these old factories, these old furnaces, they could grow these bulls of silicon carbide. They can successfully produce quality uh, material of silicon carbide chips in volume, wafers and then chips. And they can get commitments from the car makers, just like Hassan said he was going to do. And that's exactly what they've done. They've led to, as you said, $3 billion in, in multi-year agreements of commitments by auto companies and others to purchase these chips for years in the future. And meanwhile, what's happened to Wolf Speed is they've been pursuing billions to build out these new factories. And the time frame for when they will get chips out of this Mohawk Valley factory in New York and a second, another factory they're building has slipped repeatedly. And so now they're in the difficult position of saying, we, we've bet the farm on building these things with billions in financing that dilute investors holding, and we haven't yet delivered the goods in terms of coming up with the volume of production. And so it's a, a total flip. And that's why you saw that um, Wolfspeed's not been a good performer. On's been a terrific performer is because the, the, the non-consensus, the dark horse bet turned out to be right with On Semiconductor and Hassan El Khoury and um, Wolf Speed turned out to be um, not yet what had been hoped. And, and can we consult the crystal ball here, Tiernan? Can we pull out the crystal ball and say, okay, yes, Onsemi's done quite well, great margin profile, as you mentioned. But Wolf Speed, this isn't their first rodeo either, right? You've got Greg Lowe at the helm, CEO of Wolf Speed. He was at TI for decades. You know, he kind of knows this circus and how things go. And he's not just, you know, throwing money at the at the wall to see what sticks. 
but it does seem like they've had some missteps. Like you said, in Mohawk Valley in New York, they've got the other one in North Carolina. I think they're building a third one in Germany right now. And it's a little bit harder to scale those up than perhaps the investing community was hoping it would be. Uh, does the crystal ball say that this is still a good strategy for Wolf Speed to cons to do everything new and highly automated and get the cost down and you know, increase the waiver side? It, do, do you think this is going to be successful or you think that it's just going to be on semiconductor continues to win more and more of those supply agreements and wins ultimately in this, in this race? The problem for um, Wolf Speed is that this market for, you know, uh, Tesla um, and Lucid and Rivian and everyone who with an EV who needs silicon carbide will absorb lots of capacity. However, in addition to on being very successful, there are very large semiconductor companies such as ST Microelectronics and Infineon, which are huge, huge uh, bottomless pockets for investing. And so um, I would say now the pressure is to show that a, a pure play, a, a company that's had to go begging for financing can um, at their scale as the pure play uh, really um, carve out enough business for themselves that isn't taken by on and Infineon and ST um, as well as whoever may pop up tomorrow because the chemistry and the physics of developing silicon carbide as a raw material um, continues to be advanced by outside parties. And so um, I, I think the market is a vast one and, and there will be a lot of business for a lot of players. It's not clear what kind of slice of pie Wolf Speed will have as they've experienced these delays. If, if just being um, uh, new with factories, having greenfield opportunities uh, will be enough for them to carve enough of a, a, pie, a size pie that's meaningful to investors. Yeah, and and the I, I bring back up again, you know, your piece from last February of 2022. Great piece, by the way. I think that everyone else has, has really picked up on this since then. But you were early to this and seeing how important silicon carbide was going to be, especially for electric vehicle makers who have committed 500 billion dollars, you know, half a trillion dollars to the, to their new lines of, of EVs out there. Most okay. of them using silicon carbide instead of regular silicon. As investors, should we be watching for those long-term supply agreements? Uh, you pointed out that OnSemi has secured. $3 billion of, of more long-term agreements. Now they've got $11 billion in silicon carbide. Um, is that what we should be watching going forward as we evaluate kind of who's winning? I think that's a good question, Simon. I think that is the unique um, acumen of Hassan El Khoury and the way he runs his company. I don't think it's a broad phenomenon. And the reason I say that is when I was interviewing Hassan two years ago um, in 2021, when he was first talking about this, before he'd signed the agreements, he was telling me, I'm going to hold these car makers and their um, you know, tier one and, and two suppliers to the fire and demand long-term agreements. But he was saying that in the midst of a supply chain crunch, as you recall, it was once hard to get chips for cars. Um, and so I think some of this is Hassan's acumen in terms of how he likes to operate. And some of it is, um, and because remember, Hassan isn't just selling silicon carbide, he sells other parts, which means he can have another piece of inventory that he can, I would imagine, I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine he can say, you're not getting this chip unless you give me an agreement for the silicon carbide, right? He can deal. Um, and I think that's part of Hassan's acumen and part of the profile of the portfolio at ON. And I also think it was also a, somewhat a creation of a supply chain era when probably customers for chips were willing to make deals just to get ahead of the pack to get supply. And now that the world is a little less tight in terms of supply, I don't know that that is a form of an agreement that 
um, persists at every single chip company. I don't know if they can even get that now. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And then maybe if I can sneak in one more question about this, yeah. I'd like to ask your thoughts about, you know, how institutional investors are, are playing this space. You mentioned um, in a couple of your pieces, I believe it was Jed uh, Dorsheimer with, with yeah. Canaccord that, you know, was kind of early in, in seeing how OLED uh, lighting was going to replace LEDs and a, a bunch of other things. He, he was kind of a, you know, an early um, uh, visionary of seeing yeah. this transition to silicon carbide. Yeah. Is the rest of the institutional community picking up coverage of the on semis and the wolf speeds out there? Are, are they interested in this trend or is it still kind of off their radar? I think they are interested and I think they're now looking beyond um, wolf speed. They're saying, okay, Hassan Al-Khori really showed us with on that it can be done. Who else is out there? And they're looking at ST Micro and Infineon and they're looking for other angles to this. You know, um, I've mentioned some in the technology letter, Simon, um, Excellus Technologies, ACLS is an important tool supplier. Um, Texas Instruments had said, you know, um, under the former CEO who's departed now, who passed the baton, we're not as interested in silicon carbide. We're not chasing fads. But companies like TI are companies that could get into this big time um, and also into the cousin chip, silicon germanium, which can, can also be a traction inverter approach. And so um, I think I would imagine people looking everywhere saying, is there something else like on semiconductor that isn't exotic, might not be a pure play, but is an interesting window into silicon carbide to invest in, um, maybe with some less risk, right? Tool, tools makers, including applied materials, uh, are always a way to, as a, to play this that's not a pure play, but that might be interesting. That's kind of a great segue to the next topic I wanted to chat about, which is Intel. Uh, mm -hmm. Speaking of chip providers, Intel has got a lot of ambitions and things that they're going after. One they just abandoned actually was kind of related to silicon carbide. They they dropped their acquisition of, of Tower Semiconductor here recently. Uh, but Intel, you pointed out that they just had their innovation conference, right? Intel Innovation 2023. And one of the things that they were really interested in was the Dev Cloud which would be using Intel's custom silicon. So again, if you want to do cloud computing, if you want to do, if you're a developer, you want to do some fine tuning on large language models or other things like prompt engineering, you can now use Intel silicon carbide uh, to be doing that. I, I guess my question is just, is this going to work, Tiernan? I mean, Tiernan, uh, Intel's been getting killed in the data center for, for a long time. A lot of that, you know, due to AMD replacing their CPUs that run those servers, this is a little bit slightly different than that, but what do you think about Intel's new ambitions? Is this something investors should be excited about? The stock trades for three times revenue, so it's incredibly cheap, um, but the margins dipped below 40% for the first time and since anyone can, probably the company's first time in the company's history in the first quarter of this year, the uh, gross profit margin dipped below 40%. It's a stunningly low level. So it couldn't get worse from a financial perspective. They cut the dividend, which is never a good sign. Um, so it's a beaten down financial model at the moment. It's a company with a lot of moving parts. Specifically, they've said they're splitting um, their historic sort of um, uh, organic whole of, of designing chips and running their factories. Traditionally, the factories just took orders from the operating units. You know, we're going to make this new Intel Xeon. And it was the chip making the factory guy's uh, job to go and produce it um, in volume. And now they've said, no, we're going to do this new arrangement where they both operate as profitable businesses and they negotiate. 
Um, and so that's a big change, a total change in the history of Intel to say one half of the business is going to contract with the other half. It hasn't been proven it can work effectively. Um, and, you know, it's a big change for something that is such a complex operation as producing uh, something with billions of transistors. So there's a lot of moving parts. There's a beaten down valuation. There's a financial model that's uh, at the moment really injured uh, in terms of margin, if not broken. Um, and there is a goal to get to back to supremacy and chip making by 2025 um, uh, when they come to that sort of one manufacturing step that they that CEO Pat Gelsinger has said now will regain the lead. Um, I mean, it, it's it's so cheap that it's an optional and do any of these things work out well? And I think there's so many things that you could say, you know, maybe four, only four or five have to work out well. They have to match NVIDIA in performance with their Intel Gaudi, uh, Habana Labs Gaudi 2 chip and start to take back business from NVIDIA in AI. They While regaining some Xeon market share from AMD's op, uh, uh, Epic line, they have to regain manufacturing prowess in 2025. They have to prove a new business model between operating units and factory and they have to suddenly, as they've never been able to in past, demonstrate that they can be a, a merchant semiconductor manufacturer for all comers, including NVIDIA maybe, who want to go to them for fab capacity. These are, let's say there are five, only five challenges for Intel. Um, will, will four of those lead to uh, the resuscitation of gross profit margin anywhere near Intel's historic margin of 64% gross profit margin? Um, uh, three bucks, maybe that's your bet, is that four or five, maybe three or five could lead to, um, a, you know, resuscitation. Um, maybe that's what you're paying $3 in forward revenue for. So, so Pat Gelsinger goes way back, right? He worked with Gordon Moore, that that Gordon Moore, the Moore's Law, you know, founder of Intel. And Andy Grove, yeah, right. And, and Andy Grove, exactly. So so Gelsinger has done this for a long time. Like, he, it seems like this is incredibly complicated. And Intel's got a lot of iron in the fires. Like you said, it's it's really only maybe only five things, but those are five really big things. You think about the foundry, you know, designing their own chips and the operating relationships. Uh, on a report card, A to F, I mean, what, what do you give Pat Gelsinger on, on Intel's strategy going forward? Is this something that A-plus investors should be really excited about because he's doing all the right things? Uh, but then, like you said, you know, maybe a turnoff that he cut the dividend and the margins are following. How should we evaluate how he's doing so well? Uh, you have to try and figure out, I'm not sure what the answer is, Simon, but what is his focus? Because companies that have come back have been about focus. When Steve Jobs came to Apple in the late 90s and Apple was almost bankrupt, um, it, he cut lines of business. He said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to sell a thing called a Newton. Get rid of that. Um, he got rid of a lot of things. He focused on resuscitating the Mac line, and he did so with Johnny Ives' help brilliantly. So focus, focus, focus. When Lisa Sue came to AMD, um, uh, many years ago when it was sort of on the downslope and Intel was dominant in CPUs, she cut lines of business. She got rid of just whole lines of business that had been brought in preceding her uh, joining. Um, and so focus, focus, focus is what helps uh, the rare business comeback. And it is rare um, to, to start to, um, to my mind, to meet deadlines and meet customer commitments again, where you have stumbled and you fail. 
Intel before Gelsinger failed multiple times to get chips out the door on time, simply couldn't produce chips anymore on time. It's a stunning, um, it's a stunning place to end up when you were the best chip maker in the world. So maybe inside of all these things that they're doing, um, Gelsinger has regained a focus on, let's say, simply turning out chips on time. And it does seem that so far, the Xeon Sapphire that came out this year, there's the big server offering was on time. And it does seem like some other roadmap chip efforts are ahead of schedule. And so if you want to believe that somewhere in all these you know, five things I just enumerated, there's focus, 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 that he's focused, then that would be the thing that I would say that no one has grasped. Uh, let's say that's the bull argument is focus, which gets a company back to meeting commitments and meeting deadlines, um, uh, which is always, as far as I can see, has been the key to the rare comebacks like um, Apple and AMD. And speaking of that, of, of deadlines and customer commitments, you know, Foundry has been such a big focus. Like yeah. Gelsinger has said specifically, you know, he wants to go out and make those merchant silicon chips for other companies that are not named Intel for their own needs. Uh, do, do you think that Intel will wrestle market share away from either Taiwan Semiconductor, the largest foundry in the world, or Samsung, the second largest foundry in the world? Do you think that Intel is going to actually win some big customer contracts from them? Or is this just something that they're going to be a distant third for quite a while? I don't, I don't believe it. And I don't believe it because um, historically, Intel could never devote its factories to things that weren't Intel's product. So to the earlier point that they've split now the relationship internally, maybe Gelsinger did that saying if the factory has to survive on an operating profit basis on its own merits, maybe they'll be finally incentivized to say no to internal projects or not no, but okay, wait, because we're going to get this thing from NVIDIA and we're going to fab that. Maybe. I don't know. But historically, they haven't been able to do this. Um, it remains to be seen if this new internal arrangement uh, propels that. Um, and it remains to be seen uh, whether they can come back in 2025 to the manufacturing lead. And in the two years to go until they, let's say, reach that, does anyone care about going to Intel for extra capacity um, when Taiwan Semi is at the top of its game? And Samsung is certainly a very good company. And Tower Semi is a good company. And Global Foundries is a good company. There's many factories to go and have stuff made. And um, it's not clear to me that more factories is strictly the limiting factor for what needs to be done today, right? And for the hardest chips to manufacture, there's lots of stuff going into watches that are older technology for which you can go to an existing factory such as Taiwan Semi or Samsung or Global Foundries or Tower Semi that has depreciated, fully depreciated equipment to make older circuitry. Um, and so, um, I don't see the market justification for it, and I don't see the historical, you know, will at Intel. And those are the things that that make me skeptical. Let, let's chat next about one of the the sexiest types of computing out there that everyone else is catching on to now, which is quantum computing. Uh, mm -hmm. Tiernan, this was this was the topic that you and I chatted about in our last podcast conversation, which was also in a uh, in twenty twenty two. In, in the time since we 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 talked about it, you know, back then, which was still very, very early, everyone was just trying to figure out quantum. I pulled some numbers. IonQ, which has kind of become the poster child of the publicly traded quantum computing stock out there, is up 87% uh, since we last spoke. And they just landed a new $25 million deal 
with the Air Force, with the Air Force's Research and, and Development Department. Uh, to frame how big of a deal $25 million is, IonQ's total revenue in 2021 was $2 million, and then in 2022 was $11 million. This one deal is essentially doubling all of their last year total revenues, uh, as it seems like some companies are really interested in pursuing this. Is this the quantum leap that quantum computing has been waiting for? Uh, the inflection point, or is it still way too early to make any kind of conclusions or even invest in this space? It's very early. Um, if you invest, you have you are paying extraordinary valuation. The actual revenue street consensus for next year is about thirty six million. So the stock's worth a little over three billion dollars, which means that if you're buying it now, you're paying a hundred times uh, around a hundred times next year's revenue, which is an unheard of multiple. Um, and that's growing from, you know, let's say 20 million this year. So it is growing at a fast clip um, from a small base, right? So from a small base growing at a fast clip is mm, whether you think it's impressive or not is debatable. But the point is you're paying 100 times multiple sales for a company that will lose um, 100 million on an EBITDA basis, uh, maybe less if you adjust it for stock options. So you're paying an extraordinary multiple. And the question is, can this company grow into that? As you point out, Simon, they have bookings um, now that are far above revenue. The projected, I think, street consensus for bookings for next year is 106 million. The important thing you got to realize, Simon, is bookings is one of these non-gap numbers that is contract value. And what what where the rubber meets the road is when the contract value is realized as reported revenue. And in the case of these systems, to my understanding, the case of the Air Force system and a similar system sale with Quantum Basel, which is a sort of research lab in Switzerland, these are um, these are contracts that had get paid out in hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, let's say, per quarter over years. So the actual time to realize as revenue these contracts is a long time. Um, so one thing is if you buy for either 100 times next year's street consensus projected revenue or let's say 10 times next year's street consensus projected bookings, um, you're, you're waiting a long time for the cash flows from that to be realized as an investor. Um, so it's it's very expensive bet on these things. Um, and I think from the business standpoint, um, a funny thing happened on the way to Analyst Day last week. You know, they held an Analyst Day on the 19th um, in which uh, the company's um, talent talked about uh, the outlook. Um, it was funny because you and I have been talking about quantum advantage for a while now. This is the term that took over from quantum supremacy. Quantum advantage was supposed to mean that it's kind of a, it was kind of a binary threshold. When you reach it, all other computers are irrelevant and you have the best computer in the world. Peter Chapman, the CEO, last week said, we no longer talk about quantum advantage. We're, that's an academic debate. The reason this struck me is, well, then you do away with quantum advantage. What exactly is the point of your computer? The point, he said, is to do business problems better. Um, but then the question becomes, if it's not a, qu a quantum leap, if it's not a binary situation where all other forms are relevant, if you're simply better, how much better are you? than let's say a billion dollar system packed with NVIDIA GPUs, right? Because um, you can do some of the same problems that Peter Chapman and his team are talking about or op optimization problems, right? So they gave an example of, they worked with Airbus on an example problem of how do you pack bags most efficiently into bins on a, on a flight. Um, you can do this with uh, other forms of high-performance computing, supercomputing. You do this um, potentially with um, deep learning forms of AI using NVIDIA GPUs. 
So it now becomes less clear to me what exactly is supposed to be the threshold at which it's so much better doing it on a quantum computer that you would spend any amount of money to buy these systems from IonQ because you just don't want to take the risk of doing them, right? The fear of missing out by running them on your old computer, your NVIDIA GPU. NVIDIA keeps getting better and better and Taiwan Semi keeps getting better and better making NVIDIA GPUs. It just does, it's no longer clear to me what exactly is supposed to be the threshold at which IonQ is, which it makes no sense not to buy IonQ machines because you don't want to run it other than on a quantum system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I share that perspective, Tiernan. You know, I'll be going next week to MIT again. I've been at least two times a year for seven years. And I, they always talk about quantum computing. And it's always this chicken or the egg conversation. It's the exact same conversation every single year of saying, you know, the commercial interest is there, but they've got to have the computer that's cost economical compared to the other options they have. I think they just can't get past that right now. These machines are tens of millions of dollars a piece. And it seems like the available market for them, which are problems that are unsolvable, by what's out there is is still very limited. It's almost a consulting project rather than something like cloud computing, which is using all the the sexy chips that you know Nvidia is making out there. And I that's why feel... this. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was going to say Simon, It's a good point. That's why most of the revenue at IonQ is not through AWS. You know, they have machines at AWS that you can go to to use, right? But most of the business is direct with IonQ, where you go to contract directly. And one of the reasons for that, as the CFO said, um, is because there's a lot of handholding that needs to be done just to run something on these things. It's very early in the development of, of, of running problems on these gigantic expensive machines. Uh, we, we mentioned IonQ. That's one of the publicly traded companies that's out there. $3 billion market cap. It's the largest quantum computing company, at least in the public markets. There's some other options too. Rigetti, RGTI is a ticker on that one. Also D-Wave Systems. Uh, QBTS, they're actually making a little bit slightly different. Quantum annealer is not a traditional quantum computer. Are you interested in any of these, uh, Tiernan? You mentioned 100 times revenue. It, it still seems super early, but what do you think about these as investment ideas? Well, the reason that Rigetti and D-Wave last I looked are trailing is because um, IonQ was early in selling systems. So as you remember, Simon, when they came, these guys came to market, the model was cloud-based, you know, quantum as a service, where they have the, the expense of setting up the machine, meaning the vendor, meaning IonQ, Rigetti, or D-Wave, and then you lease 
runtime, least cycles like old timeshare computing, um, just like a cloud model. Um, and but the street's been excited about these large bookings of multi-million dollar, multi-tens of million dollars of deals. And so IonQ is the one that was first to show that someone would step up and buy these machines to run on-prem. And that's why they have the lead, at least in press releases. Uh, I'm, you know, if if IonQ is a long bet, then the two most nearest competitors, D-Wave and Rigetti, who haven't yet had the momentum in press releases in bookings of IonQ seem like less interesting. Because they all have interesting technological approaches. But at this point, the only thing that the street cares about is can you show me bookings of system sales? So these other guys are kind of, you know, uh, they would have to catch up in system sales to be at least as interesting, I think, to most investors as IonQ. Absolutely. And one final thought on this one before we, we jump to a, another topic. But I think that the ecosystem is going to be as important, if not even more important than the systems themselves. Just like NVIDIA made CUDA, you know, to get developers understanding how to use GPUs for whatever software application they want to do, you've got to define the quantum computer's capabilities in a way that makes sense for whatever problem you're trying to solve. And that's why these companies like, um, you know, Strangeworks and, uh, you know, Quantinuum, which is going to be coming public here shortly. Very interesting to keep an eye on, I think, as investors, should we consider this part of it, which we haven't even talked about really yet. Very, very good point, Simon. It Qt has been around for over a decade. It's only in recent years that um, it became a phenomenon that has created a software story for NVIDIA. Um, if, you know, IonQ has been developing software tools for a few years, do they have six, seven, eight more years potentially of having to build a software ecosystem before it has the momentum with developers to even make uh, a $25 million computer useful. Uh, it's a real issue of software tools, software tool availability and maturity, uh, adoption by developer community um, before these systems are anything other than interesting science projects. Speaking of software, another topic I wanted to, to chat with you about was the 25, um, excuse me, $28 billion acquisition of Splunk by Cisco Systems that just got announced. That was about a 30% premium to Splunk's previous uh, trading price in the public markets. Uh, this is generally regarded as kind of Cisco's growing interest in DevOps and observability. As you pointed out on the technology letter in the article you wrote for your own site there, that uh, you know this is kind of something that a lot of companies have been more and more interested in. And perhaps it's because finally the pricing is right for a lot of these software companies that were just ridiculously expensive in 2021, settling down a little bit now uh, in the in the public markets. Uh, wh what's your take on the Cisco acquisition of Splunk? And do you think this is a prompt for anything further? Well, I think it is a prompt for for a lot more deal making. Um, the The market has been highly fragmented, meaning the market for what you call DevOps or DevSecOps or observability. It's been highly fragmented and. Um, you've had uh, companies like Datadog and Dynatrace and New Relic, which is being bought out by private equity, um, and Splunk going after this for years. Um, and it does feel like it has to consolidate at some point. And I would imagine this can be a spur to that. The, the takeout price for uh, Splunk uh, around, I think, seven times projected revenue or thereabouts was a nice um, level above what I think New Relic got only about four and a half or five times revenue. So it was a nice sort of higher takeout price. Uh, this market that 
all of these companies serve, as I understand from talking with the companies, is still vastly um, a, an area of internally built tools, Simon. So IT departments build their own homebrew tools to manage the application lifecycle from development to serving to putting in production. And so um, I think Cisco looks at it and what they say probably is a huge fragmented market that is mostly still bespoke internal development looks like a market that we, a giant such as Cisco, come into and rationalize with a strong sales force, you know, a meat and potatoes, raw red meat sales team. We go in and we get, we drive sales quarter after quarter and we capture that market opportunity better than these little companies can. And I think there's some argument to that. Um, I, it may be that um, that kind of horsepower of that kind of selling of a company like Cisco starts to make the management of these other companies look to to protect themselves with a, a larger acquirer as well. It, it makes sense. I'm glad you brought up New Relic too and the valuations piece because software sales is kind of transitioning, right? Uh, like you, We've seen that uh, it's longer sales cycles. It's harder to close deals. We saw a lot of tech layoffs in Silicon Valley anyway. And you mentioned seven times sales. That seems like a reasonable offer and considering that a lot of these companies were 20 or even 30 times sales in the not so distant you know past here um, new relic got bought by a private equity company or two private equity companies together for six and a half billion dollars and of course there was also an all-cash deal for splunk um, certainly the attractive the valuations are more attractive now but it, it it also seems like it's getting harder to sell for a lot of these companies that maybe some of them are just putting their hands up and saying look Take care of it, Cisco. You've got the sales team. You've got the relationships. It's too hard for us out there. What's your take on that, Tiernan? They, they might. Here's the, the countervailing factor, Simon, which is uh, we just came through an IPO season in 2019 and 20 and even into 2021 to an extent where companies got extraordinary valuations at IPO. What that meant was they banked unbelievable sums of money. So if you look through uh, any of these companies, um, one thing you'll notice you wouldn't have seen in prior eras uh, with small software companies is just extraordinary balance sheets. Um, and so some of these companies, the management can go the distance and they can demand um, a pretty substantial premium because they can say, you know, we know that this market needs to consolidate. At the same time, we're not in a cash burn situation where we're in trouble. We don't need to tap equity markets. We we are generating profit increasingly because now we've committed ourselves by cutting uh, employee count and we've and we've reduced expenses. And so um, we're either near profitability or profitable on a cash flow basis for many of them. Our our trouble, as you mentioned, with selling has now stabilized to the point where. You know, estimates have come down. Um, sales have gotten sales growth has come down from let's say thirty percent to fifteen percent, but it's now maintainable. Uh, and so all these companies are saying, okay, maybe this is the new normal. Is we go along at fifteen percent growth. It's not as ambitious as it was when our stock was valued, you know, at thirty times revenue. But we can we can do this. We can maintain this quarter after quarter, and we have the the balance sheet to keep going. And so then you get a situation which is interesting, which is uh, you never had this kind of bargaining leverage by small companies to say, we don't need your money. We have enough of a balance sheet to keep going. Uh, to, to have some fun with this, Tiernan, you know, you mentioned that there's some other companies out there that might be of interest for those with deep pockets. 
mm-hmm. especially in these kinds of trends. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna spot you with three. I'd like you to either pick one of these three to be the most likely to be acquired next, mm-hmm. or you can take the field and say it's none of those three. It's gonna be someone else. But I think that these three at least have been mentioned as potential MA mm-hmm. candidates. The first is GitLab. Mm-hmm. You know, for software applications, kind of organizing a lot of those, working out in the same DevOps um, space. The second, Datadog, an observability platform um, for cloud computing. And then the third in cybersecurity is is CrowdStrike. Mm-hmm. Uh, so GitLab, Datadog, CrowdStrike, or someone else, who's the most likely to get acquired next? I'm my Off the top of my head, I would say Datadog, because to me, it's a function. It's not a full um, business. It's a function. Uh, and it's apparently a very good function, but it's it's a component of someone else's toolkit. Uh, but I think those are all excellent suggestions. I mean, security, CrowdStrike seems to have a defensible franchise, but um, I, I can imagine roll-ups in security as well. I can imagine someone putting together the various pieces because there's lots of these interesting ones. Zscaler is another great security franchise. There's lots of these great security franchises out there. It makes you wonder, okay, we've got Palo Alto, CrowdStrike, Zscaler, um, you know, and you've got uh, uh, Fortinet, and then you've got older things like Checkpoint. Does some of this rationalize the same kind of thing? You wonder, does this market rationalize itself in security? Um, GitLab, uh, again, huge balance sheet. I, I think they think they can be the number two to Microsoft GitHub. I don't know if that's true, but I think I feel like they feel they have this opportunity to resist being bought and to go the distance. Maybe they will prove me, you know, too idealistic in that sense, but they would be, to my mind, less likely to sell. I think I think Datadog is a good pick of something that feels like like it wants to be inside of some other, you know, larger offering. Okay, Tiernan's money is on Datadog. You can you can submit your own bets on which one you think is most likely. Datadog, DDOG, GitLab, GTLB. Uh, CrowdStrike CRWD or something else, let us know, info at 7investing.com if you have a pick out of those. Uh, you mentioned IPOs. You mentioned bringing money into the balance sheet and well-capitalized software companies. Let's talk about a recent IPO uh, for the second time around. Uh, it's Arm Holdings. I say for the second time around because this was one that was actually taken out of the public markets a few years ago by SoftBank. Uh, they brought Arm Private at a $32 billion valuation in 2016. They've now spun it back out at a $55 billion valuation. Uh, and it's now publicly traded again. ARM is the ticker for this one. Um, I mean, this is a company that, you know, SoftBank kind of took out of the public markets. Now they're spinning it back. And they made a pretty good payday on this, Tiernan. What's your thoughts on the IPO for Arm here? Uh, it's way too expensive. It trades for 15 times next year's revenue, 17 times this year's revenue. And as, as I understand from some of the reports from, for example, Pierre Faragu of New Street Research as, a, as an analyst who's done a lot of good work, um, Pierre notes that recurring revenue is what people care about. So there's two kinds of revenue, Simon, license and recurring. License is a big thing that you sign, let's say, once every several years with a company like Apple signs a license so that they can play with the instructions of the ARM design and make their own thing, make the A-series processor. Um, royalties are what just come month after month from all these devices now using actual chips built with ARM technology. And royalty is what people care about on a recurring royalty basis. Um, so some subset of total revenue, the stock is more like 30 times forward revenue, which is extraordinarily expensive. Uh, I look at this, Simon, and I say to myself, number one, 
when Masayoshi's son, the chairman of SoftBank, bought Arm in 2016, the stock got a 40% premium. Uh, what proceeded to happen was growth slowed and margins were reduced. So you're now paying, asked by SoftBank to pay, they're going to still own 90% of the, of the stock. You're all asked to take a minority position at a price that is inflated by the takeout price Masayoshi's son paid in 2016 for a business with less desirable financials. And by the way, for a business whose market, main market, most of ARM designs, a vast majority, as I understand, collect royalties from the smartphone market, a market that is a lot less attractive now than it was seven years ago when SoftBank bought the company. So when I look at this, I say to myself, okay, so they've got high, high gross profit margin. Is there a company that has similarly high, maybe not as high, but high gross profit margin is in a market that's expanding, not contracting or in static? Um, and it has a tremendous operating uh, history and is at similar valuation multiples. Well, it turns out based on next year's revenue, NVIDIA trades for a little over 13 times revenue, below 15 times for ARM. So NVIDIA is cheaper based on next year's revenue. NVIDIA has incredible margin structure and NVIDIA has an expanding data center uh, uh, AI training and inference market for its chips that is growing is putting it mildly versus the smartphone market um, for ARM. And um, so far, NVIDIA has no competition whatsoever. I mean, they're cleaning up the floor with Intel and AMD and all the startups that compete with them. ARM has competition from um, not only the existing entrenched products, but also this movement of RISC-V, which is an open source um, instruction set architecture for chips that is gaining momentum will soon produce a new, probably stunningly promising IPO in the form of Sci-Fi, the startup that um, is sort of a middleman. It brokers the open source. It's kind of like what um, Red Hat was for Linux. Sci-Fi is going to be what, um, you know, how RISC-V finds its way to the commercial business market for investors. So I'd rather keep my powder dry and, and wait for the inevitable sci-fi IPO, which will probably be cheaper and more exciting than the ARM IPO. Um, and in the meantime, I'd just rather buy NVIDIA as a better franchise that's slightly less on a forward revenue basis. Uh, you read my mind. I'm glad you brought up, uh, you know, RISC-V because it, it for, I mean, to think about this, ARM has been around for a long time, right? It's publicly traded since 1998. You know, like you said, it's got kind of like this lock on the smartphone market, which is still important, but, you know, perhaps le less exciting since it's so ubiquitous now. RISC-V, like you said, open source architecture, you know, telling the chips how to do what they're intended to do or whatever you want them to do. Do you think that this is disruptive to what ARM offers in the license for chip makers? Or is this still something that it's going to have its, its place? You know, techies are still going to want to do this, but the majority of the market is still going to be kind of more stuck with the traditional licenses. I think the the open source stuff is going to eat the chip market just the way Linux ate. Um, Linux and the whole Apache stack ate the whole internet um, software world. Uh, everywhere you look, every single product company from Elastic to GitLab is built on some open source franchise. And they have good businesses, but what dominates is the fact of open source. And I think it's inevitable that things are going to go open source. NVIDIA is a backer of RISC-V. So is Qualcomm, um, Western Digital. So there are parties that believe in this. Intel believes in RISC-V. It's going to go the way of RISC-V and being a boutique instruction set vendor such as ARM is going to have less uh, appeal to it.
Well, we touched on quite a few topics, Tiernan. and we talked about uh, quantum computing. We talked about silicon carbide. Talked about Cisco's acquisition. We talked about Intel. Now we've talked about the ARM IPO. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Is there? I, I know that you've got kind of a, a podcast and you've got kind of a portfolio of tech stocks that you're very interested in. Anything else that individual investors should be keeping an eye on in the technology space right now? Yeah, I think some of these um, uh, hydrogen energy companies, hydrogen cell companies, and I haven't done enough work, uh, Simon, to look at them, but things such as alternative energy forms um, right alongside silicon carbide in alternative materials um, uh, are going to be increasingly important. It's a materials sort of century we're in, um, engineering of, of novel materials and the kinds of prospects for low energy computing that they can bring and energy efficient everything that they can bring. So I would say that whole constellation of things that go hand in hand with silicon carbide, of new materials, um, new approaches, uh, and renewable energy is going to be still be very, very interesting. And it may be that, let's say, solar had its time in 2007, right, with first solar and sun power. But there are other forms out there, hydrogen energy, geothermal energy, and, and those are interesting areas. And I'm just starting to kind of figure out what it means. Well, Tiernan, this was a lot of fun. Thanks very much for being on the 7 Investing Podcast this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Simon. And once again, you know, if, if you're not yet familiar with Tiernan Ray, I highly recommend that you subscribe to the Technology Letter. That's thetechnologyletter.com. Uh, he's probably one of the most forefront thinkers when it comes to the technology <laughs> world. I've signed up since the very first day he had offered it, and I will fully endorse this. You will not regret signing up for uh, for his newsletter. It's fantastic. And Bless it's really you. a pleasure to have Tiernan. Bless you, Simon. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much for being on the show. I always enjoy these conversations. And thanks for listening to this edition of our 7 Investing Podcast. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7 Investing. Have a great week.